This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from John chapter 13. John 13, I'll be reading the first 17 verses. Hear now God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended... The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, (coughs) and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, I pray that you would write it on our hearts, that we would know and understand the truth that is communicated to us in it, uh, that we would see what Jesus has done for us and how we are to live as a result. We pray this in his name. Amen. What is a job, what is a task, what is a responsibility that you would never under any circumstances want to have? Maybe it's something dangerous, something excessively dirty. Maybe it involves working with things or working with people that just really aren't your cup of tea. In our society, there are jobs that involve working with unpleasant things. There are things like garbage, things like sewage, things like medical waste. They have to be taken care of. Those are jobs that have to be done, but they tend not to be the most popular of jobs. Most 
people would rather do something else with their time and with their lives. Well, in the time of Jesus' incarnation, his time on the earth, probably one of the dirtiest jobs one could have or one could do was to be a servant and have to wash feet. It was usually, again, a job of the servants if one had servants. Otherwise, it was something dreaded and despised because this was a very different sort of time in the world. There were no cars, not very many horses. Most people traveled by walking. They didn't have socks or the fancy closed-toed shoes that we have now. They didn't have indoor plumbing, so people didn't bathe that often. So feet walking and open-toed shoes got quite dirty. They probably got pretty sweaty, pretty smelly. So all of this to say feet washing was probably one of the dirtiest, most undesirable, most degrading jobs that someone in the first century could have to do. So what does it tell us about Jesus? And what does it tell us about ourselves that the first act recorded by Jesus on the last night that he will spend with his disciples is foot washing? We will see that as we look at the text tonight, there are three points. First, there is condescension in verses 1 through 6. We will see how Jesus, though he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we have just seen in chapter 12, he does this most humble act of service for his disciples. But second, we see cleanliness in verses 7 through 11. Peter speaks up, as he often does, and this provides a teachable moment about what Jesus has done for his people. Then third, we see a commission. In verses 12 through 17, Jesus has done this act to teach his disciples something that they should do. So again, our three points are condescension, cleanliness, and a commission. So first, we will look at condescension in verses 1 through 6. We see in verse 1 an introduction to the night where Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. Now, this account in John does not include some of the details that the other three Gospels do about that night, details such as the institution of the Lord's Supper. John likely already knew about the other Gospels, and he wanted to fill in details that the other authors did not cover, so... He picks up a little later. He picks up after supper. He picks up in the discussion. This text uh, from here in the next few chapters is usually referred to as the upper room discourse. Now, some who seek to discredit the reliability of God's word, they've tried to manufacture a problem with this text. They say that since Jesus died on Friday, this event would be on a Thursday. But the Passover feast was celebrated on Friday. And they would say that this proves the narrative false because Jesus wouldn't be having a Passover meal with his disciples on a Thursday. This really isn't a problem. While the Passover feast was on Friday, the Passover was celebrated all throughout the week. We even saw in the last chapter already on the Sunday before people were in Jerusalem observing the Passover. So there is a dinner it's not the main Passover feast, but still a Passover meal that will be had on Thursday night. This will come up again later in this upper room discourse. 
and we'll see other time markers in the text. But I just want to introduce this problem here just to tell you there really is no problem here. But another thing we see in verse 1 is that Jesus knows that his hour had come and that he was about to depart the world. He knew his death was imminent. By the next evening, he will be dead. His body will lay in the tomb. His soul will have departed to the Father until Resurrection Sunday. We get here John's note that Jesus spends these final hours loving those who were his in the world, loving his disciples, teaching them, encouraging them, helping them. This introduces the upper room discourse and the related events that begin here and continue through chapter 17. Knowing that his departure is imminent, what is Jesus going to tell his disciples? What is he going to do for them? He loves them. He helps them. He is concerned for their good. Now, Jesus also knew, as verse 2 describes, that Judas was his betrayer. He would have always known this. And he knows at this point that Judas's treasonous plan will be put into motion very soon. Remember that when Jesus had supper with Mary and Martha and Lazarus a couple of chapters ago, he rebuked Judas for his interest in money that Mary spent on the perfume that she used to anoint Jesus for burial. And it was revealed there that Judas was a thief. He would take from the funds that the disciples had that were supposed to be for helping the poor, he would keep them for himself. And Jesus knew this as well. But he kept Judas around. He did not expel him. Why? Because Jesus had purpose to suffer death, and Judas's betrayal would be the means whereby Jesus will give himself over to his enemies so that he might suffer for the salvation of the world. And we also see in verse 3 that Jesus knows that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus knows that he has already conquered and that he will conquer. He knows what is to come, and though it is sorrowful and difficult and painful, the end is assured. Now, this is not to say that he is always going to be so well composed. He will later in the garden sweat teardrops of blood because he is so distressed at what is to come. He is so distressed that he will have to drink the cup of God's wrath. On this issue, Calvin writes about this Composure in the upper room, but also the distress in the garden. Calvin writes, I reply, both were necessary. It was necessary that he should have a dread of death, and it was necessary that notwithstanding of this, he should fearlessly discharge everything that belonged to the office of the mediator. So Christ knew, according to his divine nature, all that would come to pass that he must suffer, but that he would be vindicated for it. But according to his human nature, he knew that death would be difficult, it would be painful, and he did not want to undergo it. This was part of how the Son learned obedience, as the author to the Hebrews writes. Though Jesus had a divine nature in which there was no shadow of change, according to the human nature, he had to learn, he had to grow, he had to experience the fallen and sinful world as a human and live a perfect, righteous life within it. 
And in that regard, he learned obedience and he learned suffering. But given what is to come and what Jesus knows about it, what does he do for his disciples once he has them gathered together? Well, in verse 4, we see that Jesus begins the process of washing the disciples' feet. He rose from supper. He laid aside his garment. It would have been his longer outer garment because foot washing is a messy job. He wouldn't have wanted to mess up his coat, plus it would have been in the way. But he girded himself with a towel and he poured water and began the task. Now, again, this would have normally been the realm of servants, not the honored guests of a meal. And when Jesus comes around to Peter, this action catches Peter off guard. He is surprised. He asks, Lord, are you washing my feet? This is a question asked in such a way that expects a negative answer. Peter is trying to signal humility. He doesn't think it proper that his Lord should wash his feet. But is Peter right about this? After all, Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords. He had every right to have other people wash his feet for him and the feet of those who are his. But this perhaps comes back to more misplaced messianic expectations. People expected a king who would look and act more like the kings they were used to not this humble servant that Jesus was. But Jesus is not interested in fulfilling the expectations of man. He has come to do the will of God. Now this also shows us that perhaps what we expect of kings and powerful rulers is misplaced. The best of kings are servants. The king of kings did the dirty and degrading and unpleasant work of foot washing because it was a good and proper thing to do. The kings of earth do not often show such humility, such care for their people, but the greatest of kings does. This brings us to our second point. After Jesus' condescension, we come to cleanliness in verses 7 through 11. So how does Jesus answer Peter's question? He is deliberately vague at first. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. In a certain sense, Jesus is now asserting his authority. He is doing what he does and saying what he says. And his disciples are to go along and accept and heed what Jesus says and does, even if they do not fully understand. Now, it is not merely that Jesus is having Peter wait a few minutes before he'll explain what is going on. There will be some explanation that comes later. But there is a certain sense in which the disciples do not yet understand everything that is going on and why it matters in the life and work and ministry of Jesus. We can remember in the previous chapter at Jesus' triumphal entry, how he came to Jerusalem in such a way that prophecies concerning him would be fulfilled. And yet John remarked that at the time the disciples did not understand those things. They did not understand those prophecies being fulfilled right in front of them. And they would not until after Jesus was glorified, till after he was resurrected and ascended. Now what happens after Jesus is resurrected and ascends to heaven? the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates the hearts and minds of believers to properly understand the Word and to understand the person and work of Christ. 
once the Holy Spirit comes, those things which previously confounded and confused Christ's disciples are made clear. And Jesus will later in this upper room discourse teach that the Holy Spirit will come and be a helper to Christ's people on the earth. But Peter objects in verse 8, You shall never wash my feet. He sees it as too demeaning, too inappropriate for his Lord to wash his feet, if that was what motivated him. It could be that perhaps, as we are often prone to do, Peter wanted to look pious and look good in the eyes of Jesus and the others for saying that it's not right for Jesus to wash his feet, but not really doing anything about it. You don't see Peter get up and grab a bowl and a towel and start doing his part. But Jesus responds, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. What does this mean? Some take this to mean that foot washing becomes an essential ordinance of the Christian faith. You can find churches that practice foot washing almost as a sacrament that must continue even now. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples was a part of his humiliation. It was something unique that he, as the Christ, as the Messiah, did. Though he was God, though he was King of kings and Lord of lords, he had to undergo humiliation, the miseries of life in this fallen and sinful world, so that he might redeem his people. And to be saved, his people must identify with him, must be united to him, must partake with him in his humiliation. Furthermore, this symbolism of washing points out the stain of sin which we all bear and what must be washed away by Christ's atoning work. If we do not share in Christ's washing, the reality of it, which is the washing away of our sins by his blood, we have no place with him. We have no salvation in him. Peter is rebuked, Peter is corrected, because although he has the appearance of humility and piety by seemingly refusing this washing, he has in fact demonstrated a form of rebellion and impiety because he is hindering Christ's work and not submitting to it. But then, being corrected, as many are prone to do, when Peter hears Jesus say this, when he says, actually, this foot washing is a good thing and a necessary thing, Peter is immediately tempted to swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme. Well, if I need to be washed with Jesus, then all of me should be washed by Jesus. My head and my hands, too. If a little bit of washing is a good thing, a lot of washing is better. Now, one might appreciate Peter's enthusiasm, but it is misplaced. And how many traditions of man twist and pervert the Christian faith by being merely a good and right thing taken too far or understood wrongly? I mentioned already that some treat this foot washing as a perpetual and abiding ordinance of Christ. I can think of other groups, other sects that try to still practice the Old Testament Jewish rituals as though they are a thing that Christians should do. You see this in things like what calls itself the Hebrew Roots Movement. 
even though we have biblical teaching like Hebrews that says we do not return to the types and shadows. You could think of other groups like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses where they might take one unclear passage from the Bible and build entire doctrines on it. Like I think of Mormons and how they practice baptism for the dead and things of that sort. Taking something that is in the Bible but then blowing it completely out of proportion or understanding it completely wrongly. Virtually every legalism ever concocted is taking a good command of God or something presented in the Bible and expanding it beyond its proper use. We should be comfortable and content with the things God has given us in the way and the extent to which he has given them. So Jesus corrects Peter's misplaced enthusiasm in verse 10. When he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. So Jesus is telling Peter that he and the other disciples are washed clean from their sins, with the exception of Judas, hence the not all of you qualifier. They have received faith as a gift from God. They have received regeneration and new life by the working of the Holy Spirit. They have received justification, the forgiveness of their sins. They receive sanctification, which is an ongoing process throughout this life. Though the believer is washed clean in Christ, there remains the presence and effects of sin that continue in this life. More and more as we rest on faith in Christ and receive his means of grace, we are more and more conformed to his image, but never perfectly. We are clean because of the work of Christ and because of his righteousness, but there remains a warfare with sin in this life, and we remain prone to lapse into sin. This will be proven true in Peter and the other disciples. Peter, you seem so enthusiastic and bold on Thursday night. On Friday night, he will flee and he will weep bitterly after he is denied even knowing his Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter is a Christian. Peter is justified by faith. But there remains a certain presence and power of sin as long as as we remain in this fallen and sinful world. We continually fight it. But we also see in Judas that there are those who visibly appear to be clean for a time. They might bear the external marks of the faith for a time, but they are proven false. A couple of weeks ago, we took a detour into Mark's gospel. We looked at the parable of the sower and the seeds and we saw there the ways and reasons that many fall away. Though they might appear Christian for a time, true faith and true life are not theirs. For these, the external marks, the continual nourishment of the means of grace, they mean nothing. They will prove vain and even condemning in the last day as those who are false prove false. Judas partook of the Last Supper. Judas had his feet washed. Judas had been with Jesus and the other disciples and seen firsthand so much of his power. It didn't matter. He was not washed. He stood condemned. But what are the disciples to take away from this act of Jesus, this foot washing? This brings us to our final point. 
After the condescension and cleanliness, we come to the commission in verses 12 through 17. After Jesus finishes this act of washing the disciples' feet, he sits back down and begins to teach. He asks if they know what he has done. Clearly, they don't know yet, and even then they won't fully understand until sometime after with the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus explains to them, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. Now again, if you stop reading here, you could arrive at the conclusion that there's some sort of literal foot washing ritual that needs to continue from this. But Jesus goes on to explain further, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So this foot washing is not about foot washing itself. Foot washing was a stand-in. It was a symbol. As I mentioned earlier, it was about the most dirty and demeaning of acts that one could do in that day. It was often the realm of the least and lowest of servants was not in the realm of lords and kings. But Jesus is instilling in his disciples an ethic that will be characteristic of his kingdom. One not of, of wielding power and lording over, but leading by humble service. Those who serve in the kingdom of God ought not think themselves any better or greater than anyone else. Any basis for pride or boasting is excluded. Now, how does this follow from what Jesus told Peter? We are humble in this way because we recognize who we are and who we were and what Christ has done for us. We recognize the spiritual washing that we have received by faith, the forgiveness of our sins, something we could never do for ourselves. And if we recognize that, it inspires in us an attitude to love and serve others even at our own expense. Even if it means doing the demeaning and degrading and less desirable things in the eyes of the world. Many use Christianity as a means to obtain and procure their own glory, their own power, their own wealth, otherworldly things. That is not what Jesus set up his kingdom. It's not what he set up his church to do. Christians are to be characterized by humility and service. We live not for our own glory, not for our own fame, not for our own gain, but for his. Those of us who are first ought to think of ourselves as last. We ought to go the extra mile in love and service for one another doing the hard things, doing the things we may not want to do, even going through pain and suffering and hardship for the sake of Christ and the sake of his people, if necessary, knowing that Christ himself was humiliated and broken and suffered such grave and terrible things on our behalf. So the call of our text tonight is twofold. First, be washed by the washing that Christ gives. Not the mere washing of feet, but the washing of the whole person from sin and death. 
All mankind is fallen and sinful. All are born in Adam's sin and bear the guilt of their own sins. But the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became a man, underwent this humiliation, underwent the cursed death of the cross to satisfy the wrath of God and to cleanse his people from sin. To those who would repent of their sins and believe in him, there is forgiveness of sins and the hope of glorification, the hope of the resurrection and everlasting life. But to those like Judas, who are not so washed, even if they might appear that way, even if they go to church every week, even if they do nice things for people, though their hearts are fixated only on themselves, there is no hope. There is death and there is condemnation. Do not be as Judas, be washed in the blood today. But to those who are in Christ, there is the call to follow the example he has set forth here. To wash feet, not in the physical sense, but the spiritual. To love and serve one another, even in the most dirty and difficult of ways. To lead through service, to triumph in suffering and sorrow to glory in a bruised and broken Savior. We are not worldly people who live for worldly things. We are Christian people who seek in all things that we say and do to glorify Christ and not ourselves. May we all have this spirit of love and service that Christ had. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you how in it the gospel is shown forth, the life and salvation and the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though being the King of kings and Lord of lords and being God, he took on this form of a humble servant. He underwent humiliation for our sake so that he might wash our sins away. I pray that all here gathered tonight would have this washing, not merely of feet, but of the whole person and of the heart, the washing that only Christ's blood can bring. I pray that we would take this message to others so that they may also be washed. And I pray that all that we would do would glorify you and be in service to you and in love for one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.